you to stand as a gesture of reverence and surrender and awe as we read the scriptures together. Just three verses today in Mark 9, verses 30 to 32. They, this is Jesus and his disciples, left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. This is the word of the Lord. You may grab a seat. We have returned after a long journey of prayer and Advent and frozen pipes back to the Gospel of Mark. We are moving verse by verse uh, in a long, slow journey to the Gospel of Mark together and taking detours occasionally when we hit a tough or complex or pressing topic around one of our values or just around things happening in our culture now. And so we're now back in Mark, and I look forward to uh, this particular set of verses, just three verses, but it's kind of a, a programmatic like routine of, of, of habit and, and, and teaching that Jesus has, and we're going to sit in there for a bit. And so the main topic I want to talk about today is around spiritual formation. Next slide, Nico. Is around what our expectations for spiritual formation are. Just like I was talking at our national time about our expectations for a Sunday service with kids in the room and what they should expect. A lot of times we come with expectations of what spiritual formation or life with Jesus should be like. And uh, from my experience, a hard thing to deal with is uh, false expectations or misguided expectations. I feel like in Bible college, one of the things that happens when we all come to Bible college, young bucks like me, 18 years old, ready to learn how to be a pastor. We all show up there, and we all have expectations about what we think it's like to know Jesus and to do ministry together. And uh, what happens in Bible college is a lot of those expectations that we come with get torn down. And the students that were able to sit in that uh, high discomfort of those expectations being torn down we're able to move through it. It's very painful. But a lot of times that process of having expectations kind of that were false or misled or preconceived get revealed was a painful one. And there were people that entered into Bible college with me as an 18-year-old ready to do ministry who are now not even, don't follow Jesus at all or not in the church at all. And I think a big thing with that was how they dealt with expectations. They said that happiness equals reality minus expectations. I don't know if I fully agree with that as that can be like you just set the bar extremely low, but if you set the bar low with your expectations, then when reality is better than those expectations, life ends up being pretty good. But sometimes I think that happens with our discipleship journey as well, where spiritual formation, which is such a core value to this church, uh, I learned that in our interview process when we were, I was, we were on the process of, of, of joining here to be a lead pastor, how seriously this church takes spiritual formation and life with Jesus and expects Jesus to form them. It's a core value of ours. And yet we still constantly need our expectations of what that journey should feel like, should be like, what it should involve uh, to be reformatted. And we learn that by going to the scriptures together. And so here's kind of the outline for today is four features of the process of spiritual formation. Then two points of tension. When I read a passage, I'm like, man, this is where I feel a point of tension in the text and tension between the text and my life. And then one reflection question as I walk away from this. So notice that three is absent, unfortunately. I couldn't make the preacherly thing work where I had like four, three, two, one. I, I tried to make it work. It just didn't work, man. Sermon would have been too long. So we got four. Four features of the process. So let's, just, let's jump right in here to these three verses. 
So being present with Jesus to be taught by Jesus. This is a core experience of being formed by Jesus. It says they, Jesus and his disciples, left that place and passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, he and his twelve, because he was teaching them. He wanted to teach them. And so even though Jesus came to save the whole world, and he went around and healed a lot of people, he found it necessary and meaningful and a core to his vocation to take long periods of time away from the crowd to be with his 12 disciples, present with them for long periods of time, so that he could teach them. So the core piece of discipleship is presence with Jesus. When I say discipleship and spiritual formation, those are synonymous terms. Spiritual formation is kind of a a phrase that we often use today. Discipleship feels like an ancient word. And so that's what we're talking about here. The process of being with Jesus is the first step of that, which seems obvious, right? Being present with Jesus so we can learn how to become like Jesus so that we can do what Jesus did is a core feature of discipleship. And Jesus found it necessary to spend time away from the crowds to do that. This should form us to expect that when we, that the, the, the period of spiritual formation by Jesus has a long time of presence with him in the quiet, away from the hubbub of the world, away from the headlines, away from the masses, away from the crowds, away from the to-do lists, long, slow periods of being present with Jesus to learn from him. And that can sound kind of esoteric. How can I be present now with Jesus who is not physically here with me? It's not complex. It's not esoteric. It's not that mysterious. The churches have been practicing the presence of Jesus in the, in, the, in the same ways for 2,000 years, through his word, through gathering with his people, and through prayer and worship. So there's not like, oh, I want to be with Jesus, but I don't know where he is. He has given us his spirit to be with us inside our bodies, and we experience and practice the presence of his spirit with us by joining with his people in worship, by praying, and by encountering the scripture. And so if you're like, I would like to be present with Jesus but I don't quite know how to go about doing that, that is, the, that is the steps. You be with Jesus by praying, by being with his people, because that's where the body of Christ is, inside our physical bodies, and through his word where we encounter the original teachings and, and process and, and lifestyle of Jesus and be present with him. And so the expectation for disciples is to be present with Jesus in order to be taught by him. Now, I think a lot of times in our culture, from my experience of doing ministry and in my own life, I want to come before Jesus for him to tell me that all is well how I already am. If you've met children sometimes, especially firstborn, some firstborns are in the room, sometimes have a hard time uh, coming to grips with the fact that they need to learn something new. Like stunned that they don't already know all the things already. Say, my man, you are five. It's going to take a bit for you to learn something. Like, hold on, let me teach you. I'm going to be at the table. I hope I don't embarrass my man Graham right now. But we're at the table right now. And Jada asked me a question about Jesus because, of course, as the preacher, I would know. And Graham's like, I got this, man. It turns to, like, give the answer to teach. And a lot of times I know that it's hard for us to grasp that if you are being taught by Jesus, it presumes, this is the expectation, that there are things in you that you don't already know, that you're ignorant about, there are things that you need to be corrected on that you are wrong about, and there are things that you have to learn. And that process does not feel good when you are with Jesus and expect only warmth and embrace, 
but instead get things revealed in you that you lack, that need to be added, that you're ignorant on, that you need to learn, that you are incorrect about and need to be corrected about. That is like, but that is what the process of learning in the presence of Jesus will feel like. Having ignorance revealed to be taught something, having incorrections revealed to be taught something too. That can be a difficult process, even when it's a correction towards good stuff. Like, I'm going to learn that I believe the lie that I am worthless or that God doesn't like me. So there's an experience of being corrected by Jesus that that is not true, that he actually does like us and desires to be with us. So at the core of, being with, of, of, of spiritual formation is that we have a God who wants to be with us and has came off his throne to become a human being, to pass through a birth canal on the way to being with us because he that much wants to be with us. And once he gets with us, he spends a lifetime with us to teach us and correct us to become like him. That is the expectation. And we should uh, not underestimate how much of a privilege it is to be invited in here. Imagine the disciples, they get to be with Jesus in the secret place. This famous celebrity that many people are learning about who he is, he is now inviting them. Many people know him and are curious about him, want to know him, and he will pull this little ragtag group of hillbillies aside to be with them because he wants to be. But he's made it possible through the gift of his spirit for that same experience for you. And so when you wake up in the morning, God is celebrating to get to be with you to start to form you. He delights in being with you. He desires to be with you. You are wanted to be embodied into his confidence. That's a crucial step because as we progress on this journey, we will realize that it will be difficult. But if we remember that we have a God who likes us so much, he wants to be with us and died in order to do so, we can handle the challenges that are to come. So hold that, put a pin in that, and let's keep moving on to the next, next one. If he's teaching us, what is he teaching us about? He teaches them about his identity, his journey, in his destiny. This is his summary statement of what he taught them. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. So this is, again, expectations of what Jesus teaches about. If you have a casual understanding of Jesus, you kind of imagine he kind of taught us the good life. He taught us how to be moral people. He taught us the right things to do. All that stuff's in there, but the core foundation of his teaching was about him about his identity and his mission and vocation. That's the primary thing. He didn't come to teach us about us first. He didn't come to teach us how to live first. He came to first teach us about the mysteries of God who became a man in Jesus and is now on the way to be killed and to rise again. That's the core foundation. It's about him. Just like when we did our prayer series, the core foundation of prayer is about God. We hallow his name. We pray that his kingdom come. We get like four lines in before we get to any requests. Same way with teaching. It is not primarily about wellness and self-discovery and becoming healthy and living the good life. That stuff will follow. It's firstly about Jesus. And so he teaches three things about himself that are repeated. This is in Mark 9, and he's going to say this like a ton of times until the end of the gospel. First, about himself, the son of man. This is Jesus' favorite title to use to refer to himself, and it's kind of a weird title, weird thing to say, son of man. Where does that even come from? It's rooted in Daniel 7. If you've ever read Daniel, it's like wild cartoon imagery, okay? It's called apocalyptic literature. It's where, like, there's wild-looking scenes 
and heaven and spiritual warfare and all kinds of wild things is happening. And Daniel receives this vision with four different beasts that rise up that are like mutant creatures that wreak havoc on humanity. And those beasts represent different empires. And then uh, Daniel receives this vision and is told that eventually, though these beasts will wreak havoc on humanity, one that looks like a human being, that is a son of man, he is a human figure, a mere seemingly weak human figure compared to these wild beasts that are harming human beings. This son of man will experience suffering at the hands of these beasts, but will eventually, after suffering, defeat them and then be enthroned next to God. The Ancient of Days will seat him next to him, and he will now rule over the world, including over those beasts if he's defeated. Jesus refers to himself as that figure, the Son of Man, who is one like who is a human being, but who will face down God's enemies on the way to being vindicated. He will suffer before those beasts on the way to being vindicated as the true ruler of God. And so Jesus is activating the memories and the understanding and the scriptural understanding of his Jewish listeners to say, that's me, that's Jesus. Jesus is saying that's his identity. And as such, his identity is deeply connected to what he came to do. Jesus primarily did not come just to teach, just to lead, to show us a good example. All that stuff is secondary to the fact that he is on the way to be killed. He starts telling them in Mark 8, hey, I'm the Messiah, and I'm going to go die. And the rest of the time, the disciples ain't trying to hear it, but he keeps repeating over and over again, I got to go to Jerusalem to die. That's what I came to do, to go to Jerusalem to die. And he repeats that into their heads over and over again because they can't grasp why he would want to do that. And, though, and then he says, though, that killing of me is not the end, but in the end, I will raise from the dead. That is the summary of his teaching that then they experience with him over and over again, and, and they're wondering about the implications of that. And for us, too, though we have all this to learn from, and though living it out has like an infinite number of things to, to learn and to, and to understand, the core comes down to that gospel message. What is the mystery of it? What does it possibly mean that the God of the universe, the vastness behind all we see and know, became a human being in order to die a gruesome death on the cross? in order to rise from the dead. How do we contemplate those mysteries? Any implication of what that would mean for wellness, for spiritual formation, for ourselves, for self-discovery, comes by way of us contemplating in the presence of Jesus and his disciples what it could possibly mean that this is who God is. The face of God, Jesus Christ, became a human being, died, and then rose from the dead. Naturally, the disciples, what is their response to this? Next point. This is part three of the four-part discussion of spiritual formation. The disciples experience, first, confusion and fear. They did not understand what he meant, and then they were afraid to ask him about it. Again, expectations. If you think, I'm going to join with God in the spiritual formation process. It's January 1st. It's time for me to start a Bible reading plan. Today I'm reading Genesis 1, 1, 1 through 3, and Matthew 1 because I'm going to eventually you know, read four chapters a day, and then by the end of the year, I will have read it all. Our expectation is I will read this, and every day, for those, after those 15 minutes of reading, I will experience some sort of aha moment, perhaps a warmth, a sense of God's presence, maybe a little affirmation, and a jolt of joy and happiness to get on with my day. Instead, what we find here is the disciples who are physically present with Jesus, who wants to be with them, 
He gave them time and he taught them something and they experienced confusion and fear. That's what their immediate feelings were. Again, if you expect that, then you won't bail on the journey. But if you say, I'm gonna start a new, a new spiritual formation practice. I'm gonna join a group though I've never been in one before. I'm gonna read the Bible and I'm gonna start going to church. And you presume you won't experience confusion or fear, you'll bail fast. But if we now read this and say, hey, the original ones that passed this message down to us, they experienced confusion and fear. So now, when I do, I should presume, hey, I'm in good company. These are the people that wrote the Bible, you know, that Jesus had to write, the, the, they, that's what they experienced. And so they experienced first confusion, a long period of not quite understanding what he meant. And they might experience that for years until it, came, it clicked for them when he rose from the dead and they kind of read back through and understood what he taught them. So there might be not only confusion for a day or an hour, you might have confusion for like years of like a gap in your understanding of who Jesus is and what he wants from you. Again, if we know and expect that that's okay, we will be trained to be okay to sit in that. And so they did not quite grasp what it could mean that God, that Jesus would be the Messiah and that what he chose to do as a Messiah was to die and then rise from the dead. And that ignorance and confusion might have been uh, uh, kind of related to the fact that they were fearful too. Why were they afraid to ask him about it? They were afraid to ask him about it because they were fearful of the implications to come. Go to my next slide here, Nico. So we, they are fearful because Jesus' teaching would have direct impact on them. Their identity and journey and destiny would, it be, would be impacted by his. Let's start with the fact of his disciples. We don't quite have a natural word for that in our culture now. Disciples originally would mean something like a learner, but it's not so much a student that just ingests intellectual content. It's more of like an apprentice. So this past week, uh, not only was there water dripping in this ceiling where water should not be. Isn't it crazy? Like when water is not where it should be, how terrifying that could be. Oh, man. I come to check the building out for the service, and water's not supposed to be in that room. The water's in that room. Well, at my house the very next day on Christmas Day, uh, we had a great Christmas day, and then I'm going down to the basement to check something out. Actually, Graham went down there, and it was like, uh, there's water dripping from the ceiling. That same, it was that same ceiling, he said, that already had water dripping from it four months ago. Remember that we repaired? Yeah, that one. They had water dripping from that, too. And so that we, there was water dripping from that. So we had a plumber come, and he brings a partner with him. He's like, this is my apprentice. He is a trainee. He's learning how to plumb. And so he follows around the plumber all day long, to learn from him what plumbing's like, to practice, and eventually he will be on his own to do his own thing. That's more like what a disciple would have been like. Not only a learner, but whatever content you learn from the rabbi, you then become, like, embrace it. You end up doing what he did. And so they learn from their rabbi that he's going to go die and have that kind of suffering. They then learn that, oh, goodness, that's my, that's my journey, too. If this is the rabbi I'm shooting it to learn from, I don't, there's no sense of divorcing the content you learn from the rabbi in the lifestyle. It's collapsed. So in our culture, we were like, we can go learn all we want, but not like let that content in, uh, change us. We can just like read a bunch of books and do the podcast and things and, and learn and that's it. That culture, if you're invited to be a disciple of a rabbi, you are now joining into that same journey. So when they hear that rabbi say, hey, I'm so glad you guys are here to learn from me, 
now the lesson from today is the same as the lesson from yesterday, and it's also the lesson for tomorrow. It's that I'm going to go die in Jerusalem and then rise from the dead. They are then told that's their journey too. And he even tells them that the previous chapter. You're going to take up your cross and follow me. If anyone wishes to come after me, you will get behind me and take up your cross and follow me on the way to the cross. And so they are afraid to ask them about what they are confused about because they would prefer, if they can keep ignorance, then they won't have to do anything about it. And you get like that, man, if I could just not know the answer to that question, I'm now not responsible to put it into practice. I would love that. Yeah, just feign ignorance. So they would like to not ask him about it because they know if he's going to suffer, if suffering is the mark of the Messiah, suffering will be their mark as well. And yet, though, there's this tinge of hope that though they will suffer, in the end, they will rise from the dead. There is a destiny there at the end. And that has to be held in check, that the suffering of the Christian life that we should expect has, with coming on the end of it, the hope of rising from the dead. And so again, these are expectations for the journey of spiritual formation. Not only will it involve experiencing confusion and perhaps fear, but it will involve suffering. Not suffering that just comes by being a human, like you experience loss and grief and sickness and that kind of thing, but a suffering that happens because you are a disciple of Jesus. A giving up of something. A losing of something. A dying on the cross. And you know what? The 12 people sitting in that space, 11 of them died early deaths. And the 12th, John, got exiled to an island. So they actually did do what he said that they would do. Follow him on the way to the cross, and they experienced the death with the hope that they would rise from the dead. So that's kind of the summary of the four steps of the process. So here's two points of tension for me. The first point of tension is this question. Does any of this feel safe at all? I've been stewing on this question a lot lately because if I've actually been told many times as a preacher that what we're saying may not make people feel safe to follow Jesus. And I've, there's a truth there. Where is the security for the disciples? Are they safe with him? I've been stewing on that a bit. And I actually don't have a great answer for it, but it doesn't feel, it wouldn't feel safe. If you experience confusion, a lack of answers, and then fear for the implications, and a future that you don't quite understand and know, and suffering is involved, it doesn't feel very safe. And so I've been wrestling with that. How do we, as our own disciples, have a sense of where we should feel safe with Jesus and where we should expect a bit of discomfort? And not only that, but how do we then welcome people into this space? What are the expectations we would set of what safety and security and comfort look like to follow Jesus on the way to the cross? Because this is Mark 9 now, and in Mark 10, or actually the rest of Mark 9, he's going to deal with ambition and dealing with the sin of the church community and the sin of, of in people's own lives as a, as a way on the way to the cross. Then in Mark 10, he's going to deal with marriage and sexuality, and he's going to deal with money. And then in Mark 12, he's going to deal with politics and what we do with uh, political rulers and our own political agendas. And eventually he's going to get to what we do with love and how we deal with unanswered prayer and how we do with our own suffering. Like those are the kinds of challenges, how we read scripture. That is what's to come. So like when we read Mark for the rest of the year, those are the topics we will hit. And in each one of those, we will not feel safe. Each one of those, we will experience confusion, probably a little bit of fear, probably some doubt and uncertainty, probably some degree of sacrificial suffering, 
and will any of that feel safe in the moment? It probably won't. And so we have to recalibrate where we find safety here. But I think we go back to that beginning. When we experience that God came off his throne to desire to be with us, and we get the experience of the disciples that he will pull us aside to be with them, that is a relational, covenantal commitment that he will not break. He will never leave us or forsake us. So there is a relational security found in the fact that God is committed to us even before we had our stuff together. The disciples failed. They were confused. They lacked. They disobeyed. They got it wrong. They abandoned him. Peter denied him. And yet Jesus was there with them. And he's committed to that. And so if you have relational security that he's committed to be with you even while you are confused and fearful and don't want to ask him the hard questions and would like to avoid the obedience, he's committed to be with you anyway. If that is a way of safety, maybe that changes things. And then also that future bit, that though our journey of suffering will be un- unclear, we are, our journey is on the way to the cross with Jesus, but the day-to-day of that, we, don't, we can't name. The future is secure with Jesus. The worst case, the long-term worst-case scenario for Christians is everlasting in heaven with God and his people. That's the long-term worst-case scenario for everyone in this room that follows Jesus, is life eternal with Jesus with every tear right from our eyes. If we can have security with that, then we may be able to endure and have the courage to endure the sense and feeling of unsafety when we experience confusion and fear and suffering on the journey on the cross. Will we accept that challenge, and can we confidently invite people into this? Which gets to my next question. Why would anyone want to sign up for this? <laughs> That's an important question to ask. We're uh, on mission. That's another one of our values. We want to share this with other people. We want people to join with us in this process. And you have to grasp, why would I want to invite a person to follow Jesus and say, hey, come join with me, and your day-to-day life may involve periods of confusion and fear and some suffering. Why would anybody want to do that? They have to have a sense that they are a a, a really discontentment, holy discontentment with the way things are now. If you already are comfortable and stable in your life and you want to come to church to feel safe by letting that kind of be affirmed, you're going to feel very unsafe. The next passage is, or the next chapter, the rich young ruler He comes to Jesus and would like what Jesus has to offer, but also wants to keep his current life. He walks away from Jesus' call sad. His experience with the face of Jesus was grief. Not warmth and welcome, not happiness and joy, but he walked away sad and grieving because he wanted to keep things as they are. And so, if though you have a holy discontentment with your life, then... You, you'll have the disciples answer with Jesus says to them, man, everyone else I've called to follow me, they left me. Are you going to go too? And they're like, man, where else will we go? You have the words of life. If we have a sense that presence with Jesus and a future hope with Jesus is the core need, you know, man, I can let everything else go. My hands are open beyond that. And many of the things he'll give back to you and all in only a restored form. But this, to me, these are tensions I put for me, because I'm personally wrestling with this. (laughs) When I experience a sense of confusion 
and fear and nervousness around the suffering call of Jesus. I'm like, man, this doesn't feel very safe or secure to me. I kind of want to bail. And uh, I don't know, how do you invite people into this in our culture? How do we welcome people in? And so the question then, the one reflection question that I'm walking away with is this. Next slide. How will we respond when we experience confusion, fear, and or suffering as we follow Jesus on the way to the cross and resurrection? We sit in that. How will we respond? Because you will, somewhere along the way. There are long periods and moments of joy and gratitude and praise. Praise God. When you receive that from Jesus, accept it. That's awesome. There will also be, even when not from any of your disobedience, just from the fact of following Jesus, you will experience periods of confusion, fear, and or suffering. And what will we do? Some of us are tempted to escape and withdraw. There are literally people that used to be here that are not here anymore, and one of the last things he told me was that they did not feel safe here. Multiple. From being challenged with this kind of stuff. Now, I need to wrestle with that as a preacher, too. Like, how do we communicate in warm, hospitable, inviting way while also acknowledging there's a challenge there? I wrestle with that. We need to wrestle with that as a community. So how we respond? Sometimes people withdraw and escape. Sometimes we would, like the disciples, not want to ask Jesus about it. We want to get away from him. Sometimes we would want to take matters into our own hands and control. I think about Eve. When she is tempted by Satan, by the serpent in the garden, she's like, the serpent makes her doubt if God's good and if God's with her and if God's for her. And she could have ran right back to God and like, you know what? This may surprise you, but I found a snake here. And he's making me doubt that you're good and that you're committed to me and that you love me. Will you clarify what the serpent's asking me about? And she can go back to him and God can clarify that. And then, but instead, she chose to take matters into her own hands. And that's the pattern that we are all tempted to follow. So instead of escaping, withdrawing, controlling, overworking, taking matters in our hands, here are the three Ps because I'm a good preacher. I keep all the alliteration as much as I can. Next slide. Presence, posture, and patience. We return back to the presence of Jesus because he wants to be present with us. And he's already there. If you're a Christian, you have the spirit in your body. He's not on the throne in heaven. He's not in Jesus' body. He's not in some building somewhere. He's in your actual heart. He has a home there. He wants to dwell in there. He has made you pure and clean and forgiven you of sin. So he is present with you. And we now can always return to him and say, God, I feel kind of scared to preach a sermon right now. I feel kind of fearful and confused by what I'm reading the passage right now. I didn't like how I felt when I went to spiritual relationship group and there was a tough conversation. I don't like how I'm feeling right now in my marriage. I feel a sense of failure because of my interaction with my kids today that I need to recover from. I feel a sense of insecurity as I've been exposed to this problem I have and this habit. Oh God, that thing that I always tend to do, I did again, and now I'm embarrassed to even come before you. All those things give us confusion and fear and a sense of suffering when we come back to the presence of Jesus because he wants to be with us. And when we're with him, will we have the posture of learning? Now that I'm before you, and I trust you want to be with me because you've chosen to be with me, I want to learn from you. I want to have the courage to ask you. I don't want to be fearful to ask you about money and scripture and love and prayer and politics and sexuality and marriage. I want to have the courage to ask you, God. I'm scared to ask you, but I want to want to ask you, will you teach me about these things? Will we have the presence with Jesus and his people in the word and in the posture of learning to say, will you teach me, God? I don't want to be scared to learn from you. I trust that you have died for me, you want to be with me, and that's the thing with the disciples. After his death and resurrection, they had a lot of mess-ups, but they seemed to have a courage. 
because they were having an understanding that their God was willing to die for them. And so they had the courage to come back to him and ask. And then the patience with the process, that there are things that take years. That Paul was a key apostle, and he spent five to seven years of his life, of his ministry-highlighted career in prison. And it took him 10 years between the, the Damascus Road experience and actually coming back to do ministry. 10 years to sort through lots of confusion and fear and calculate the cost before he really took ownership and followed Jesus on the way to that. 10 years. You might have long periods of, you might have a decade of confusion before you finally step into what, uh, some clarity in the, in the process. And so when we experience confusion, fear, or suffering, we can either say, God, I'm not safe with you, or we say, God, if you died for me, I trust you are safe, and I will come before you. It reminds me, if you read the Chronicles of Narnia, when, uh, if you've not read that book, there's a big scary lion, but he's actually Jesus, and I'm spoiling it for you, but it's kind of an obvious story for the kids. Anyway, in that story, they're describing the lion. They cannot believe the lion, and they say, is he safe? And they're like, safe? Who's saying about safe? He's good, but he's not safe. And if we come to grips with how good God is, even if it means your life may seem unsafe at times as you experience confusion, fear, and suffering, we have confidence that in the end of all things, he will overcome the gaps between us and him in full, and we will have life eternal with him. The long-term, worst-case scenario for a follower of Jesus is eternal life with the God of the universe and his people without fear, without confusion, without suffering, without tears. Will we have the presence and posture and patience to wait on that time. Let's pray.